Our Father, you open your Bible this way in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That's uh, that's a phrase that all by itself puts where we are this very moment in perspective. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. He is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and he is the end. You were there in the beginning because you have always been. Everything that we see Everything that we enjoy has been created. We have been created. You have always been. Our, 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 our minds are, our, our minds are not capable. Our minds do not have the capacity. Our, our minds do, do not have the ability to comprehend the incomprehensible. But that's how the Bible starts. And because you have always been, it gives us where we are tonight, every man, in different circumstances, in different places, some in, some in great joy, some in great anguish, no matter where we are, it gives us perspective and it gives us great hope. There was a time when we did not exist. You brought us into existence. We will never go out of existence. We will always be. But we had a beginning. Uh, if you didn't bring us into existence, we would not exist. We are dependent upon you for life. You gave us life. We didn't ask for it. You are the God who sustains our life on a daily basis. There are times when we look around and compare and wish that we were in better shape than we are financially, physically, maybe in a relationship. We sometimes worry, Lord, because of the economic situation about our jobs and careers <coughs> and our income, that you are the God who gives fresh manna every day. Quite frankly, we don't like being in positions where we need the manna every day. We, we like to have our barns full. We like three, six months, 12 months. We like five years with the surplus in the barns. And, and you have been gracious at times to give some of us those kinds of provisions. And we, we know it comes from you, and we don't trust in them. We thank you for them. But there are times when we're just back to give us our day, our daily bread. For some of us, what we need is manna. We need manna emotionally because we're struggling. Some of us need <coughs> manna in terms of our, our careers, our jobs. But Lord, we say to you tonight, you're the giver of life, you're the...
sustainer of life. And we trust in you alone. Encourage us now, Lord, as we look again at John 14. We need to hear from you. We need to be reminded of these truths. We keep being pulled away from the word of God. We are constantly barraged with half-truths and with blatant lies. Give us perspective tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, Jesus has just troubled their hearts by way of quick review. He has just troubled their hearts in John 13 by telling them what's going to happen very, very quickly, what's going to come upon them. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He has told them some things before, but they haven't quite gotten it. And so he is reiterating some things. He tells them in John 13 he's going to go away. He tells them that uh, this is news, that one of them is going to betray him. Uh, He specifically tells Peter that Peter... Uh, you're going to deny me three times, and Peter cannot believe that. Uh, P- 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 Peter has a much higher uh, view of himself than is warranted and is appropriate. Lord, I'll never deny you. But he's about to deny him, not once, not twice, but three times. Um, uh, contextually, uh, in, in the other Gospels, when you read the accounts, uh, Jesus has just said to them that you're all going to fall away, and they all did fall away. In the midst of that bad news, in the midst of that disappointing news, uh, which produced some anxiety and fear and uncertainty because they're trying to put the pieces together. Now, we're 2,000 years later. We're looking back, and we see the whole story, and we see the unfolding of of events, the things which to them were future, uh, to us or past. So we know the story. We know how the story turned out. But they didn't. They were just showing up and punching in. And in the midst of all of this bad news that that Jesus gives them, he he gives them a command in in verse 1 of John 14, and and he says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Stop letting your hearts be agitated. In other words, guys, I know this has raised anxiety. Have you ever had anxiety just suddenly raised in your life? Sure you have. You get a phone call. Uh, or you'll get an email, and I don't know how you respond physiologically to anxiety. Everybody's a little different. Some guys, their hearts start racing. Uh, with me, personally, uh, I break into a sweat. I, I do. I just, I just start sweating. Just how I respond physiologically to anxiety and stress. Everybody has a different uh, physiological response to high anxiety, to high stress. Um, but, but that's the outside, that's the external. What the real issue is, is what's, is what's going on inside of us. I was heading to California this past weekend, and that's a three, four-hour flight and delays sometimes. I picked up a book uh, that's just out by... Uh, Henry Paulson, called On the Brink, who was the Secretary of Treasury when the whole meltdown went, came down. You recall those events, don't you? Um, they're still with us. And quite, quite a hefty book, quite a thick book. And I got through it over the weekend. Um, I, I was, um, I, I, he was very candid. He was very candid as the events unfolded 
Uh, interesting enough, he, he, he kept a meticulous diary, uh, meticulous notes, phone logs. Um, and on Sunday, September 15th, 2008, let me read you a couple paragraphs from Hank Paulson. By the way, I had found out, I didn't know this, that Hank Paulson uh, is, a, is a Christian uh, of the Christian science religion. That's his family tradition, that's his family church and their, um, uh, their, their church that they worship in. Christian science in recent years has faded. It, it, the people in Christian science have aged, uh, their finances have dropped off. A lot of times in wealthy areas and cities around the country, you'll see a First Church of Christ scientist. There's one down in Highland Park. Um, but they've had a significant decline and a significant drop-off. You don't meet a lot of people these days in Christian science. Paulson is in Christian science. He writes these words. Uh, Sunday, September 14, 2008. Back in my temporary office on the 13th floor, a jolt of fear suddenly overcame me as I thought for a moment of what lay ahead for us. Uh, Lehman Brothers was as good as dead, and AIG's problems were spiraling out of control. You remember that, don't you? With the U.S. sinking deeper into recession, the failure of a large financial institution would reverberate throughout the country and far beyond our shores. I could see the credit tightening, strap companies slashing jobs, foreclosures rising ever faster, Millions of Americans would lose their livelihoods <clears throat> and their homes. It would take years for us to dig ourselves out, of under, out from under such a disaster. All weekend, I had been wearing my crisis armor, but now I felt my guard slipping as I gave in to anxiety. I knew I had to call my wife, but I didn't want to do it from the landline in my office because other people were there. So I walked around the corner to a spot near some windows on the other side of the elevators, and I phoned Wendy, who had just returned from church. I told her about Lehman's unavoidable bankruptcy and the looming problems with AIG. What if the system collapses, I asked her. Everybody is looking to me, and I don't have the answer. I, I am scared. Wendy said, you don't need to be afraid. Your job is to reflect God, infinite mind, and you can rely on him. I asked her to pray for me and for the country and to help me cope with this sudden onslaught of fear. She immediately quoted from the second book of Timothy, verse 1-7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, <clears throat> but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The verse was a favorite of both of ours. I found it comforting and felt my strength come back with this reassurance very transparent uh, clip out of his life during an incredibly stressful time. He found 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, comforting. And I wondered, why? Why would he find that verse comforting? Now, I don't, I don't mean to be harsh here. But um, I did have to ask the question several times. Why in that world, why in the world would that verse be comforting to him? Now, I know why it's comforting to me. And, and I know why it would be comforting to you. But I'm not sure why it would be comforting to him. And I'm going to tell you why. We have said over the last few weeks that Christianity is a thinking man's battle. Christianity is a thinking man's game. Uh, <clears throat> in the opening the statement here in John 14, Jesus says, let not your heart, your heart is you, your heart is everything about you, your mind, your mind, 
your will, your personality, your emotions. It's you. So when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, let not your heart be in anguish, let not your heart be agitated, let, 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 let not your heart be ruled and dominated by uh, terrifying anxiety. We've all been there. We've all found ourselves there. And you can understand why this man who loved his country, who does love his country, and whether we agree with him or not, you can't, I, I think, uh, after reading his book, I, I certainly can't say anything other than he was trying to do the right thing. Even if the choices he made were not your choices, there's no doubt this guy was sacrificing for his nation. You, you can't dispute that. But, but in this moment of high anxiety, and you may say, well, Steve, this is a little harsh. You know, the poor guy is just under the gun and he's stressed out and his wife reads him a scripture and you're, you're callous enough and cold enough to say, why would he find that comforting? See, this is where you have to think. And this is where what we believe makes a difference. What we believe and what the Bible says is critical. You know, we live in an age where um, just about in every walk of life, the whole purpose and the whole goal is unity. We just want everybody to get along. Well, you know, why, why, do, why does there have to be divisions? Why did, I remember years ago when Promise Keepers was going, was going, they kept talking about breaking down the walls. And there are some walls that need to be knocked down. But can I tell you something? There are some walls that need to be there and they need to remain there. We need to break down denominational walls. Um, perhaps. Denominations can get weird. Denominations can get screwed up. But the reason, there's a reason historically we have denominations. It's because somebody read the Bible. And because somebody believed that certain things were true that others did not believe were true. And so a different group, and that's the study of church history. Uh, doctrine, our understanding of doctrine evolves as the years go by. When you study church history, it's amazing. There are no new heresies. There are no new errors. There's, in terms of cults, in terms of New Age, in terms of false teaching, it pretty much all surfaced in the first five centuries of the church. So whatever error, whatever, um, uh, whatever false teaching is out there today, you can find its roots in, in the early years of the early centuries of church history. Um, Doctrine matters, truth matters. When Jesus was, was trying to calm their hearts, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. And then what does he say? Believe in God, believe in me. All right, the, so the, here, here's, a, here's a huge question then. If the solution to having my heart be calmed down is to believe in God and to believe in who Jesus is, I must believe correctly who God is, and I must be, believe correctly who Jesus is. I'll give you two quotations from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The first one is this. He wrote these words. He said, number one, the greatest need of men and women in this world is the need of what we call a quiet heart. And he's right. You've, you've had an agitated heart. You've had an anxious heart. You've had a worried heart. You've had a, a nervous heart. We've all been there. The greatest need of men and women in this world is the need of what we call a quiet heart. Second statement from Lloyd-Jones. The claim of the gospel is not only 
that it can give us a quiet heart, but also that nothing else can. That's critical. Nothing else ultimately can calm your heart and quiet your heart in the midst of circumstances and events that threaten you and potentially can bring you down, whether it's you personally or your nation or the world. And we look at this stuff and we start fomenting, we start imagining, and if this happens and if this happens and if this happens, we get into a Psalm 94 thing, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me. That's anxiety. And that's where these disciples were. That's where Paulson was. Poor guy, he's slugging it out every weekend. You read the thing, he's not getting any sleep. This is going on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. You start breaking down. No wonder the guy's anxious. So the verse is handed to him, and it comforted him. But it shouldn't have. Christian science was started by a lady named Mary Baker Eddy. Uh, it's uniquely an American sect and cult. Let me give you a couple quotes from her writings as to what they believe about certain things. The reason I'm giving you this is that the solution that Jesus gives to a troubled heart and to a quiet heart, he requires that we believe that certain things are true. If those things aren't true, you have no business having a quiet heart. You have no business having a calm heart when the nation is falling apart and the world is going to hell in a handbasket, which it is. Is it not? Yes, it is. But that's all part of a plan that a sovereign God has put into place. And I remind you that once again, we are right on schedule with God's plan. And one day Jesus is coming back. Once again, that's either true or it isn't true. A couple of uh, theological statements from Mary Baker Eddy. In terms of the inspiration of the Bible, uh, she writes these words. The manifest mistakes in the ancient versions, the 30,000 different readings in the Old Testament, and the 300,000 in the New. By the way, I have no idea what she's talking about. These facts show how a mortal and material sense stole into the divine record with its own hue darkening to some extent the inspired pages. Exactly. He said, huh? The point she's making is, it's not the inspired word of God. Satan is always attempting to cast dispersion on God's word. In the garden, he tempted the woman. She said, God has said, if we eat of that fruit, we'll die. He said, what did he say? You shall not die. Right out of the blocks, he, tempts, he attempts to cast doubt on what God has said. So you've got a deficient Bible that cannot be trusted. On the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, which, which, which the Gospel of John is all about. You say, Steve, why are you going into this? I need some encouragement tonight. Man, I've had a rough day. Well, then you need the doctrine of the Trinity. And you need to know who Jesus is if you need encouragement. Because if he isn't who he said he was, You're in trouble, man. You are in 
trouble. And you better stop, you better start popping some stronger meds. And you, if you don't drink, you ought to start. <laughs> and if you don't take steroids, I'd go ahead and shoot them up. I would do whatever you can do chemically if Jesus is not who he says that he is in the Gospel of John. But if he is who he says he is, we're okay. We're okay. She writes the theory of three persons and one God that is a personal trinity, suggest polytheism, which is what they had in the Old Testament. Many gods. Rather than the one ever-present I am. The Christian, the Christian who believes in the first commandment is a monotheist. Thou shall, uh, uh, in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no graven images. You see? Then she says this. Thus he virtually unites with the Jews' belief in one God and recognizes that Jesus Christ is not... God. Doctrine of God and the Holy Spirit. God is all in all. God is good. Watch this. Good is mind. What does that mean? That's nonsensical. Good is mind. God's spirit being all, nothing is matter. Nothing is matter? This is matter. Is it not? You think this doesn't matter? Let me hit you in the chops with it. You'll find out it matters. This is matter. It's not all spirit. I'm sorry, but that's utter nonsense. Isn't it? God, spirit, being all, nothing in matter. God, divine principle, life, truth, love, soul, spirit, mind, nothing in there about holiness. Although Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah I died, I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they flew, and with two they covered their feet, and they cried out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Nothing of the holiness of God here. The virgin birth of Christ, a portion of God could not enter man, neither could God's fullness be reflected by a single man. Else God would be manifestly finite, lose the deific character, and become less than God. That's heresy. The doctrine of miracles. The sick are not healed merely by declaring there is no sickness, but by knowing that there is none. She's not from California. She was from Massachusetts, which is pretty much, you know. Christian scientists believe that there is no sickness. They also, and really, you go back to their whole concept of God, they're pantheists. Uh, I was on a missions trip in, in Jamaica when I was 16 years old. It's the first time I ever ran into someone who believed in pantheism. I was talking to a lady who was a Hindu from India. She lived in Kingston, Jamaica. And ever since she was talking, and I was talking to her about God and about Jesus, she said, well, I believe God is everywhere, and God is everywhere. I said, well, he's omnipresent. But she said, well, God is everything. I said, no, he's not everything. She said, he's everything. God is that door. God is that window. God is this floor. God is that grass. God is that bug outside. God, no, no, he's not. That's pantheism. Are you guys getting the drift why I'm going through this? 
Because you see, if you say God has not given us a spirit of fear, the question is, well, who is your God? And if your God is this God, 2 Timothy 1.7 is not a help to you because you have the wrong God. Now, here's my question to you. Who is your God? And what do you believe about your God? Uh, i got to give you a couple more. On the atonement of Jesus Christ, the material blood of Jesus was no more efficacious to cleanse from sin when it was shed upon the accursed tree than when it was flowing in his veins as he daily went about his father's business. She denies the atonement of Christ. Jesus' students, not sufficiently advanced to fully understand their master's triumph, did not perform many wonderful works until they saw him after his crucifixion and they learned that he had not died. So Jesus actually didn't die. She goes on and talks about how he hid himself and then revealed himself three days later. You say, why are you going into this? Because it matters what you believe. Hence, evil is but an illusion, and it has no real basis. Evil is a false belief. Um, the sinner makes his own hell by doing evil, and the saint his own heaven by doing right. That's not the gospel. Heaven and hell are not regarded as specific destination one reaches after death. Let me read that again. Heaven and hell are not regarded as specific destination one reaches after death. Jesus said, I go to what? prepare a place for you. They are specific destinations. One sacrifice, however great, is insufficient to pay the debt of sin. You say, why is that a big deal? You know, the scriptures say that if someone says that Jesus is not the Son of God, you don't even let him into your house. What we believe about God matters. What we believe about who God is, what we believe about who Jesus is, you, you, you see, we're talking about tumultuous situations that we find ourselves in. We, we talk about tumultuous circumstances. And, you know, Paulson's trying to handle the economy. And as he said, if this thing goes down, it's going gonna, it's gonna to last a long time. Uh, I think it was Warren Buffett said, who, who said in the summer, this recession is going to be deep and it's going to be long. I, 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 I would tend to think he's right. And, and a lot of us are still feeling the weight. A lot of us are still feeling the crunch. And we're wondering, how, how long is this going to go on? And the money I had invested that I lost, when am I ever going to get back? And how are we going to get this? And how is this going to sort? And how is this going to work? And all that. And you get fulminant, and you get trouble, and you get anxious, and you get worried about the future. What you believe about God in those situations is critical. The only way you can find peace is to have your heart quieted. And, and what, again, were the two statements from Lloyd-Jones? The greatest need of men and women in this world is the need of what we call a quiet heart. Secondly, the claim of the gospel is not only that it can give us a quiet heart, but also that nothing else can. When you get into John 14, the last three verses of, of, of the six-version slice that we're taking in John 14, 1 through 6. This is, this is clearly delineated. Um, because you see, what you have here, when he makes the statement, is that only the gospel can, can provide you with a quiet heart. 
And what that means is that nothing else can provide you ultimately with a quiet heart. What he is speaking of is the fact that the gospel is exclusive. Now, in our culture, if there's anything that is offensive, it is the fact that Jesus makes the claim that he is the only way to God. Because we live in a culture where we're real big on unity. Well, hey, unity is a wonderful thing as long as unity is based on truth. But I refuse to give up biblical principles in order, in order to find unity. This is what we've had going on for years and years and years in the religious world called the ecumenical movement. Why can't we just all get along? Why can't we just all, oh, let's put our differences, oh, as I saw in the clip from Larry King um, with several pastors, and one of them, John MacArthur, was on there, and, and one of the guys with a collar and, you know, in some historic denomination said, well, yes, I believe Jesus is the only way to God, but there are others all over the world who, who don't believe that, and our God is so good and our God is so kind and so gracious that he doesn't require that they believe that to come into the kingdom. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And this man, who I believe was a Methodist, if John Wesley were alive, John Wesley would put him out of the Methodist church. But he's departed from the faith. He's departed from the truth. In John 14, we'll read the whole thing. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. When you believe in God, that means think about God. Think correctly about God. Uh, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When my daughter Rachel was born, she was so cute, I had to go buy a new camera. This is, this is really true. I had an old beat-up camera from Boy Scouts. I wasn't much of a photographer, but I had to get some pictures of this little girl. Can I tell you guys a story? And, and so I'm, I, I'm writing out my bills, and I was doing my Exxon credit card statement. And you know how they put those little flyers in there for stuff you don't need to buy? You know, impulse stuff? They had a, uh, they had a 35 millimeter, this was a long time ago, 35-millimeter camera deal with three lenses in a bag. I know anything about cameras. But I called up my friend, Alan Johansson, and he's all over that stuff. And I told him about it, read him the stuff and the price. He goes, Steve, that's actually a, that's a, that's a darn good deal. So I bought it. When I got the, the thing in the mail, I, uh, I took it out, you know, a nice little set bag and lenses and all that, and it came with a normal lens. It says something in Japanese. I think it says normal in Japanese. But when I stand here with that camera, with the normal end, I just see everything normally, just like I'm seeing it now. I can reach into the bag, never move my feet, just reach in, get a long lens, narrower lens, change it out, my whole perspective changes, right? Called a telephoto lens. Without ever moving, just changing lens, I can focus on a doorknob 75 yards away without ever moving. Take that lens off, reach in, get another lens. Uh, stubbier, shorter, put that on, what's that called? Wide angle. 
what's happening in John 14 here in the first three verses, when their hearts are troubled? See, when your hearts are troubled and you're agitated and you're worried, you know what you have? You got your telephoto lens on. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm going to get that money back. I'll never get that back. That stock market is going to. You know, I'm 68 years old. I mean, it took me 40 years to put that. How in the world am I going to make it? What, you know, and then you, you just go nuts, right? Anxiety, worry, trouble. Oh, my gosh. Oh my, you got to tell, all you can see is the worry, the pain, what might happen. You know what Jesus is inviting these guys to do? Get that short, stubby lens and stick that sucker on there, right? It's wide angle. Hey, guys, ho, ho, ho. You're worried right now? You're, I know you're uh, Listen, in my father's house there are many men. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. See how important wide angle is? Now, watch this. You got this guy, Thomas. Thomas was always going to summer school. <laughs> Thomas had to go back and take the classes over. All these guys did. Watch what happens. Jesus is telling them what he's going to do. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I'm going, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Now watch this. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not, where, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, you idiot. <laughs> How many times do I have to tell you? What is wrong with you? Have you not been paying attention? You know, I'm getting sick and tired of, of, of this doubt. Uh, 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 you know, I, I am deeply disappointed in you. All the things you've seen me do, all the miracles you have seen firsthand, all the things I have taught you, and you're asking me questions like this? Get out of here. Just leave. Just go to your room. That's not what he said. You ever wonder sometimes? You ever get upset at yourself? You ever get mad at yourself that you're not trusting him more than you are? Do you? Yeah, you do. And then you think, well, yeah, he, he's got to be displeased with me. Watch, watch the mercy here. Watch the grace. Lord, Lord, he says, you know, Lord, we, we, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? And watch what Jesus does here. Jesus says, Thomas, guys, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I, I, I think this is significant because I think uh, I'm always amazed at the, uh, at the mercy of God. I'm always amazed at his loving kindness. I'm always amazed at his patience. I'm, I'm always amazed at his tenderness. Does, 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 he, does he ride Thomas? Does, does he uh, embarrass him? 
Does he shame him in front of the other guys? Does Jesus do that? He doesn't do it. What does he do? He just goes back over the truth that Thomas had heard a hundred times, two hundred times, three hundred times after three years of being with Jesus. He, he, he doesn't stomp on the guy. He doesn't publicly embarrass him. He, he doesn't say, you'll never amount to anything. You know, some of our fathers said that to us. You'll never amount to anything. You're just stupid. When are you ever going to learn? Uh, you know, some, some homes are not safe. Did you grow up in a safe home? And, and, and when I say that, sometimes homes are not safe because there's physical abuse. And there's, uh, there's a temper. And there's drinking. And a man gets out of control. Real men have power over their power. If you guys that have small kids, you guys, you men that, are, that have sons, little boys, let me tell you what you ought to do with them. You ought to, you ought to wrestle with them. Uh, when, when we watch football, my, my dad, for some reason, he liked to watch football. He, he'd stretch out on the floor. That's just how he liked to watch football. And my dad was a big guy. And the three of us, We'd be all over him. We'd be watching football, and my dad had hands much bigger than mine. I, I can hold a basketball. He could just cover it. He had paws. My dad had grizzly blood. And I mean, his hands, it, it went, uh, this happened to me so many times, I can't tell you anything. Uh, somebody would meet my dad and shake his hand, and then later they'd go to me. I mean, he had a paw. Two of them, actually. We watch football with my dad. I remember watching when the AFL started in 60. Watching the Raiders. Al Davis was 80 years old then. <laughs> watching the Raiders playing the Houston Oilers with that oil derrick on the side of the helmet. And, and the station was fuzzy. I can remember that as a kid. All right, right on College Avenue in Bakersfield, California. And my dad's on the floor. He's kind of leaning like this, watching the game. And we're just, I'm the oldest, we're just all over my dad. And during the commercials, we jump on him. We tackle him. And I mean, <clears throat> you know what my dad would do? He just wrestled with him. He never hurt us. Never. He just, he just, he, he, and you know, he was teaching us stuff we didn't even know he was teaching. He had power over his power. I remember when uh, I came home from college, and my brother Mike, who's a senior in high school, had just gotten a full ride to USC as an offensive tackle. We walked in, and there was my dad, and we both hit him at the same time and tackled him, and his back went out on him. He couldn't do anything because he couldn't move. But it was funny because even we were just horsing around, he goes, he goes, hey guys, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. And he was never quite the same again in his back. You know? Because I was about 220, and Mike was about 290, and we just pancaked him. 
It's how we were raised. It's what you do in a Christian home. <laughs> but can I tell you something? There was an atmosphere in my home where it was safe. It was safe. The most powerful individual in my home, I was safe with. We, we talked about things that were going on in our lives. Sometimes that were, that were really kind of hard and I was ashamed of, but we'd talk about things. But it was safe. It was safe. Maybe you didn't have a home like that. You say the wrong thing, you're just hammered. You, 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 you say the wrong thing or you say something out of line, and man, I mean, you just are ripped in shreds. Sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a crock that is. All kinds of guys in here, all, all kinds of busted femurs, busted collarbones in here, busted arms. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. <laughs> Some of us can still remember something that our dad said to us when we were seven years old, and you're 60 years old, and you can still remember it like it was yesterday. Because you did not grow up in a safe home. I, I want you to see the environment with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't, where were you? We don't know. It was safe. It was safe. And, and, and hey guys, I want to tell you something. When you're struggling, when you're troubled, when, when you don't have your stuff together, when you failed, you hadn't had a drink in two years, and, 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 you, and you went and did it, and you just, you just are so ashamed, and you let me tell you something. It's safe. It's safe because he's good. He's good. I, I just had to say that because I appreciate how he handled this guy. Now watch this. You know these words. These are very exclusive words. The world hates these words. The world hates it. United Nations hate these words. Uh, university religion professors hate these words. What does he say to them? Lord, we don't know the way. Where are you going? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is not diversity. This is not multicultural in the sense that whatever religion this culture has and whatever religion this culture has and whatever religion this culture has, they're all one, they're all... There are many ways to God. No, there isn't. You can't get to God through Muhammad. You can't get to God through Buddha or through Confucius or through Mary Baker Eddy or through Joseph Smith. You get to God the Father by one way and one way only, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. If you believe that, you will be hated. Because this nation has changed, hasn't it? There's room and openness and tolerance for every viewpoint and every opinion except the true one. If in your place of work, you try to walk circumspectly and carefully, but if there is a situation that comes up where you are pressed and you're trying to be wise and you're trying to be careful, but you are on the line or you are asked to do something that is counter to, the, to, to, to your principles and the Word of God, and you stand on the word of God, 
you'll be hated. You will be persecuted. They will talk about you. They will laugh at you. They will mock you. The hubris of saying Christianity is the only way. How can you say that? I can say it. Uh, Jesus said it. Jesus said it. I was reading John Calvin this morning. A lot of people don't like Calvin. A lot of people have never read Calvin. When I read him, I like him. He was the first guy to write a commentary series on the whole Bible. Calvin. There's a bunch of commentary series out there. Go to a Christian bookstore, really some good stuff out there. It didn't exist until Calvin wrote his commentaries on the Scripture. About 28 volumes I got on the whole Bible. He was the first guy to go through a book, verse by verse, you know, give its context, all that. Go through the words, you know, context, all that. First guy to do it. I like reading him. Guy's got a lot of insight in the Word of God. God used him, along with Martin Luther, to bring about a reformation. A lot of people got a lot of issues with Calvin. But, but I got to tell you something. I find Calvin sticks to the Word of God. A lot of people, your problem is not with Calvin. It's with the Word of God and what it says. And he just had the um, cojones to say what it said. This is why we have a men's Bible study here. So I'm reading Calvin, and uh, Calvin looks at John 14, 6, and he's got a three-part outline. I'm looking at that sucker, and I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at it, and I said, well, you know what? I'm stealing that outline. I'm just, I'm just flat plagiarizing that outline, because really, you really can't improve on it. But I'm telling you, I'm plagiarizing it. And, you know, he can sue me, but he's dead. <laughs> what does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Here's the three-point outline. Number one. We begin with him. When he says, I am the way, we begin with him. Secondly, when he says, I am the truth, we continue in him. Thirdly, when Jesus says, I am the life, we end in him. I'll give them to you again, real quick. We begin with him, we continue in him, and we end in him. Uh, Matthew 7. Turn over there, if you would, please. Uh, when John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress in that jail in Bedford, England, uh, uh, John uh, Bunyan was in the 1600s. He was a tinkerer, sold uh, copper pots and kitchen gadgets, and he would repair them. He was a traveling salesman and was a blasphemer, hated the gospel, and then Christ came into his life, and he was gloriously and wondrously converted. And, and, as, and, and what happened, there was a change in his heart, and he was out making his rounds. He began to tell people about, about Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. And the guy had such passion, and he, was, he had such a great mind. And, and, you know, back then, people knew the Scriptures. They were aware of Scripture. And, and, and he, would, he would start talking to them about Scripture and start explaining Scripture to people. I'm going here to, to Matthew 7, verse 13. There's a reason I'm telling you about John Bunyan. What would happen is he'd make his rounds, and, and you know, he would go to the same towns. He'd, he'd make a circle, and you know, he might come back to this town in three weeks. And, and, and friends started telling 
their friends about this guy, and they said, when are you coming back? He said, I'll be back, you know, a week from Tuesday. He'd show up a week from Tuesday. There'd be 200 people waiting for him. Go ahead, John, tell us that stuff. The guy was a dynamic preacher, dynamic preacher. And what happened, he started raising such a ruckus, preaching the word of God and preaching the gospel, that the authorities arrested him, and they put him in jail, and they said, John, look it, you can't do this. You got to quit preaching this gospel. Because, you know, we got this state-ordained church and all of this, and, you know, they, they didn't want this. They had this Pharisaic, bureaucratic system, and you're riling the troops up. Well, you you got to stop. They put him in jail. Um, very interesting, because you can go to a museum that is in Bedford, England, and, and they have recreated his cell. He had, a, uh, he had a day cell, and he had an evening cell. Very, very unique. Um, they, they put him in prison. Um, he was there for 12 years, this, this incredible preacher, preacher, and people were grieved. They were just grieved. How could the Lord allow this powerful preacher to be put in prison? Why did God take this man who was being used by God to bring so many people to Christ? And he spoke with such passion, with, with such clarity, and there was such an anointing in his life, and now he's locked up. Oh, by the way, they said, John, we'll let you out any day you so desire will set you free if you promise not to preach the gospel. He, he said, no. Woe is me if I don't, what? Preach the gospel. So he had a uh, night cell and a day cell. They were attached. The night cell was just a small cell. They would shut the door. It was barred with, uh, with a bed in it. That's where he spent the night. But he had a day cell. In the providence of God, he had a day cell, which they would open up uh, the door, the barred door, open up, and here was a nice size cell, like a kind of a small office. Had a desk, had paper, had writing material, he had a Bible, he had some books. For 12 years, he was in there. He couldn't preach, so he wrote. Wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress, which is the second best-selling book in the history of the world. Second only to the Bible. His family was destitute and in poverty because they didn't have any, you know, they didn't have any help. He had a daughter who, his oldest girl was born blind. And whenever they would come to visit and then it was time to leave, he said it was like someone pulled the, the muscle right off my bone. He just ached, but he could not compromise the gospel. I've got, I, I don't know, four, five, six volumes of his stuff on my, I mean, 300 years later, I'm still reading his stuff, and so are people all over the world. His best-selling book is called Pilgrim's Progress. It's about a guy named Christian. It's a metaphor. It's about a guy named Christian who's on a road, who's on a path. Matthew 7. You thought I forgot, didn't you? Watch this. Jesus says, I was five, now I'm in six, now I'm in seven. Jesus says in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, for there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. So what did Jesus say in John 14, 6? Thomas says, well, Lord, we don't know the way. He goes, he goes Thomas, hey, I am the way. 
I am the way. Uh, there, are, there are two, what is a way? A way is a path, a way is a road. And what Jesus says here is there are two roads, and each man must make a choice. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. It's like 635 going down to that high five thing. Or do you remember, you remember how Central Expressway used to be? Driving to Dallas on Central Expressway? My gosh, you get claustrophobia. It's like being in an elevator at rush hour. You couldn't move, you couldn't breathe, you couldn't go ahead, you couldn't go by. I mean, you just didn't move. And it was so narrow, it was so constricted. Remember the first time you drove in the new Central Expressway? My gosh, it was unbelievable. It's all kind of room, change lanes, and you don't look, and it's just great. And then everybody, and you know, I used to avoid, I avoided Central Express. I think I actually went nine years without ever getting on Central Expressway. I, I'm not exaggerating. And then I heard it was open. And what did I do? I got on Central Expressway. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Most people are on the wrong road going the wrong way. Jesus said, narrow is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and few are those who find it. If you're a Christian, and you're following Christ, if you're following Jesus Christ, you will always be going upstream. You'll never go downstream. It's never easy. Uh, you'll never be popular. Uh, they don't ask you to sign the yearbook. They don't like you. You do a commercial with your mom, and they're going to rip you apart because of a precious story. They're going to rip you apart. Broad is the road that leads to what? Destruct. Oh, there are many ways. Oh, we just want unity. I want truth. Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to life. Fewer is the Jesus said, I, hey, hey, I am the way. And, and God sovereignly works in our lives. And you know what he does? He gives us a beginning. He gives us a new beginning. He gives us a new heart. He brings us to Christ. He forgives us of our sin. He forgives us. He not only forgives our sin, he forgets our sins. Your sins and lawless deeds I'll remember no more. When you embrace Christ and Christ alone, and you trust in him, and you say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I believe you went to the cross. I believe that you died for my sin. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You see? Not if you believe he's the all in all, the ultimate mind. No. If you believe Romans, what it says, if you believe the word of God about who Jesus is, he'll forgive you. He'll come into your life. He will give you. You know what he does? As Calvin says, we begin with him. All right, secondly. Secondly. We continue in him. I'll, I'll just, just follow this quickly with me. Um, see, that's why he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, because the guy's on a trail. And there was a time when he didn't know Christ, but then Christ comes into his life, and now he's on the narrow way, he's on the narrow path, he's on the narrow gate. So, so, so now, you see, you have a beginning with Christ, and, and, and now, between the beginning and the end, you're on this trail, and you're walking with him. And you know, as we're walking with him, do we get all the truth and do we understand all the truth when we hear the gospel? Do we understand the word? Do we get it all right? 
immediately in the first week? The answer is no. Chuck wrote a book years ago, I think with the title, Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Backwards. Kind of how it happens in the Christian life. Sort of like Thomas. He'd heard this stuff a bunch of times and he still didn't get it. That's how we are. Does the Lord jump on us? No. Because you see, we, we, he, he's our beginning, but we also continue in him. John 8. I want to show you how critical this is. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. Don't forget this. I am the truth. Now go to John 8, 31. Jesus said this. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, watch this, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Set you free. Are we freed immediately from sin when we come to know Christ? Do you never struggle with pornography? Do you never struggle with lust? Do you never struggle with, with, uh, with greed? Do you never struggle with a, with a harsh and critical spirit? Do you never struggle with that again? Well, you do struggle with it. Why? Because, because now you're just an infant in Christ, and, and you're, on the, you're on the milk of the Word, but we're not supposed to stay on the milk. We're not, hey, hey, if you've been with Christ for 40 years, you need to get off the Gerbers. You need to get on the prime rib and the broccoli and the Brussels sprouts of the Word of God. Because he wants us to become a mature man. It doesn't happen overnight with our kids. It doesn't happen overnight with us. But the key to spiritual growth, and the whole key is to grow, if you continue in my Word. So before we started, a gentleman came up to me and he said, this weekend, it's been a year. It's been a year that I started meeting with the Lord first thing in the morning. I begin my day with the Word of God. Never done it before. He hasn't missed a day for a year. That's great, isn't it? That's wonderful. That's growth. Has there been some growth in his life? Absolutely. There has to be growth. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. You struggling with pornography? You got to take some harsh steps, man. What did Jesus say? If your eye offends you, put on sunglasses. If your hand offends you, put it in a cast. That's not what he said. Sometimes you have to get extreme with sin. And when you get desperate over certain sins, that's when God breaks through. And you got to struggle, and you gotta, but, but it doesn't happen overnight. We're, we're walking in grace. But I want to say this to you. I want to give you some encouragement. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. You say, I'm still struggling. You'll struggle until the moment you die or in his presence. But as you struggle, you're, doing, you're building spiritual muscle. And there's a growth. Is it rapid, rapid microwave growth? Is it microwave popcorn growth? You get in three and a half minutes? <sighs> no, it's Orville Redenbacher, old-fashioned, in-the-pan popcorn growth. I used to do that Orville Redenbacher popcorn. We'd, you'd have to get the burner red hot, put the oil in, put one in there. And you're talking like 12 hours. <laughs> and, you know, I just... Sucker pop. Pour the rest of that stuff in there. And you 
And there's kind of a rhythm to it. <laughs> sort of a Pentecostal rhythm to it. <laughs> and then, you know, I don't know, how long did it take? 12, 15 minutes? You get your popcorn. There are no Christian microwaves, guys. No two minutes and 30 seconds for spiritual maturity. It's a process. How do you grow? By continuing in his word. Thirdly, Jesus said, I am the life. You know what this means? We end in him. We end in him. Psalm 23. Last verse. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Watch this. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. What? Let me ask you something. David said, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. I talked about this some last week in here. But tough stuff happens. Hard stuff happens. When hard stuff happens, we get troubled and, and, and... and, and sometimes we get crushed. And, and, and how do you find a quiet heart when your life falls apart? David's life fell apart numerous times. Where, where do you find hope? You find hope in the one who is leading you, in the one who is saving you, in the one who is sustaining you. And you put on the wide-angle lens and you realize it won't be this way forever. This is momentary. This is temporary. Let me ask you something. How old are you? And then let me ask you something. In your mind, how many years do you have left? Uh, you may, I mean, you answer it. Some guys may say, well, maybe, I, you know, I got 15 years. Or, I mean, if you're 85, man, you don't have 40 years left. I hate to bring bad news. <laughs> but if you're 85, you ought to be thinking of that. If you're 15, you ought to be thinking of it. Because if you're 15, there's no guarantee you're going to see 21, is there? Death is inevitable. And when we, worry, and when we think about death, we, think, we don't want to think about it. But when we do think about it, it troubles our hearts, it troubles our spirits. That's why this is read at funeral services. Our lives are a breath. Psalm 90. Moses talks about 70, 80 years. Just our labor is pride and sorrow. Soon it is gone. We fly away. And what happens when you take your last breath? Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Remember our buddy Lance, a few years ago, when he was just eaten alive with cancer. I went down to see him at Irving. And it wasn't looking good. And we were talking. And, and... they told him just a few days. And I said, Lance, let me ask you something. How are you doing? I'll never forget this. So how are you doing? He went. I said, that's not bad, man. 
That's not that. He said, overall, Steve, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. I said, good. I said, it, you don't have a lot of time, do you? He said, I don't. I said, 40 years old? I said, well, Lance, you know what? You're about to have the greatest thrill of your life. You're going to see Jesus. And all this is over. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, Father, we thank you for truth. Because of who you are and because of who Jesus is, we say, based on the word of God, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power and love and sound thinking. And we are comforted by that because you have told us in your word who you are and who Jesus is. We believe what you have said. We believe your gospel. And we would, there, there, there are people in our lives and we would pray that your spirit would work in their hearts so that they would believe the gospel. There are wandering children represented in this room who were raised to know you and fathers with broken hearts. Bring that prodigal back in your way, in your time. Don't let this father lose heart or lose hope. We trust in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray.